0: It's great to see y'all today. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad I'm here. And we're going to be in the book of First Samuel today. This has been a good morning already. We've had two great worship services already, great music. Uh, I loved hearing from Eve today. I thought his story is so powerful. Um, unfortunately, he had to catch a plane. He's, I'm sure he's speaking somewhere else real soon. But y'all keep him in your prayers. I'm, I'm so excited about what God's done in his life. But I'm also excited today about what God is going to do through this next series. I love the story of David and we're starting his story today. Every year when I come to the story of David in my Bible reading, I'm excited because every time I'm reminded of some of my favorite stories, I also see some things that I didn't see before. Maybe a a minor character has a backstory or a motivation that I never thought of, or maybe there's an event that I see in a brand new light. You know, this is the longest story about one individual character in all of ancient literature Bible or otherwise so we know more about David than we know about anybody from the Old Testament era and there's so much there you ever notice how people today they'll binge watch a series um, or they'll watch something on HBO or or some other network and then they'll get together and they'll talk about it like why do you think this character did this and what do you think is going to happen next you could absolutely do that with the story of David because there's so many details so many characters So much, so many things happen. Um, and, And so you could just read the story of David as a really great story and you would be entertained and you would be uplifted, but that's not what it's here for. It's not just there for your entertainment. A lot of people read the story of David, on the other hand, as an example to follow. So in essence, they look at David and they think, how can I be more like that? Basically, they make themselves the main character. They put themselves in David's shoes and say, for instance, next week, how am I going to face a giant, right? Next week, we're going to look at the story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, and they think about, well, think about all the obstacles I'm facing, all all the things that look too big for me to overcome. What can I glean from David's life? What tips can I get from him? Maybe five steps I can take to overcome my giants. Well, guess what? You're not David, and I'm not either. And sometimes when we face giants, we get our clocks cleaned, we get our teeth kicked in. And if you, if you look at the Bible as simply an instruction manual for life, you make yourself the main character, you can, one, you can run into trouble because it's more than that. I think the way you read David's story is the way we're supposed to read the entire Bible and that is to focus on Jesus. Where do we see Jesus in this story? See, you aren't the main character of Scripture. David's not even the main character. Jesus is. And I'll tell you where I get that from. In in Luke 24, we we read the story of uh, Jesus rising from the dead. And later that same day, that's the very first Easter Sunday, we read the story of two of Jesus' followers, two of his disciples walking from Jerusalem to a city called Emmaus. And on the way, they're talking about what happened on Friday. And a stranger comes walking alongside them. And it's Jesus, but they don't recognize him. He has hidden his identity from them. And they begin to tell this, this stranger this story about this one they thought was the Messiah, the Savior of the world, but now He's dead and we don't know what we're going to do. And the stranger starts to answer them and he starts to tell them stories about how the Old Testament points to Jesus. How not just the Messianic prophecies that we all know about, but even the laws, even the stories that don't seem to have anything to do with Jesus, even those, those little details that we just sort of blow away when we're reading through the Bible ourselves, like the construction of the temple, like, uh, like the sacrificial system, all of that, he says, look at how it points to Jesus. And when they get to their destination, he tells them who he is, they worship him, he disappears, and they say to each other, weren't our hearts burning inside of us when he talked to us on the road? And later in that same chapter, Luke says, Jesus went and had that same conversation with his 11 remaining disciples and said... Listen, let me open your eyes. You've been studying the Torah, the Law and the Prophets your whole life. Let me show you what it's really about and points all of it to Him. And so, again, the main character of all Scripture is Jesus. So another way to say this is, don't read Scripture to to find out what you should do. Read Scripture to find out what He's already done. And that will tell you what steps you need to take. So, how do we do that? I'm going to show you through this story because today we're going to look at, at chapter 16 of 1 Samuel And it's the story of of God choosing David to be the next king of Israel. So our temptation is to read it and say, well, I want God to choose me for some great thing. What kinds of things do I need in my life? What was David's secret ingredient? What do I have to have for him to choose me? And there is a secret ingredient, and we'll get to it at the end, but it's not what you probably think. So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king? over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king from among his sons. So here's Samuel, and obviously the book is named after him, so he's obviously an important character. He was the, he was the spiritual leader of Israel, and yet this is probably the only time we're going to refer to him in this whole series because David becomes the main character after this, the main, uh, the main one named in the story. Samuel was born to a woman named Hannah. This is a great story. If you've never read it, it's in the first chapter of 1 Samuel. Hannah was a godly woman, a woman who had incredible faith, but she was barren. And in that culture, if you couldn't have children and you were a female, you had, people thought you had nothing to contribute. So Hannah prayed and prayed, Lord, please give me a child. And God answered her prayer. And when Hannah knew she was pregnant, she sang a song. She composed a poem and sang it out loud, which was really a prophecy. Hannah turned out to be a prophetess. And her prophecy was listen, y'all, if God would look at someone like me, a forgotten, barren woman, the, the least favored wife, if God pays attention to me, then someday He's going to send us a king, His anointed one, who's going to rule over our country and set things right. And he's going to punch the bullies out and he's going to exalt those who've been humbled and he's going to take the people who are fat cats and he's going to knock them off their perch and he's going to provide for the needs of the oppressed and he's going to bring justice in the land and make things the way they should be. Now remember, she's saying this when Israel has no king and has never had a king. So when Samuel grows up and and he's this powerful prophet and he leads Israel as their spiritual leader and he rescues them from idolatry and he saves them from the Philistines, at one point God comes to him and says, okay, Samuel, it's time for the Israelites to have a king. I want you to anoint Saul, the son of Kish. And so he finds this young man, this man a head taller than anybody else, and he anoints him with oil. And I'm sure when he's doing this, he's thinking to himself, finally, my mother's prophecy is fulfilled. This is the man who's going to make our country what it ought to be. This is the man who's going to set things right. But that's not what happened. Saul got off to a good start, but he turned out to be no more godly, no more just than the kings of the pagan nations around him. And it was a bitter disappointment. In fact, when God in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel tells Samuel, I have rejected Saul as king. None of his sons will sit on the throne. This is going to be a dynasty of one. And I'm moving on. Samuel, it says, cried before the Lord all night. He was heartbroken. And so in verse 1 that we just read, this is God saying to Samuel, Listen, I've let you grieve long enough. It's time to move on. There's someone else I've chosen. My plan is not dead just because the first king failed. In fact, I knew that would happen. I've got somebody better. So here's what happens next. Verse 2, and Samuel And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. By the way, Samuel's right. Doesn't matter if you're the spiritual leader of the nation, that's high treason and the king will put you to death. And God says, don't worry. I'm sending you out on a secret mission. I've got a perfect cover story for you. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. Listen to this. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? This is how you know things are messed up in Israel. When the spiritual leader of the nation comes to your little one-horse town and your response is not, hallelujah, Samuel's here. Let's listen to a sermon. Let's praise the Lord together. Instead, your response is, are you here to destroy us? Have we messed up that badly that you've come to call down judgment? Is fire going to come down and roast us all? Do you come in peace? And he said, peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So Samuel's a godly man. He's an amazing man, but he's still just human. And we've all got those little ways that we judge others superficially, right? We look at people and we we think we know their story. To the Israelites, they looked at Saul and said, now he looks like a king because he was a head taller, because he was handsome, because he was strong. He turned out to be terrible. Samuel looks at Eliab and he's got the same look as Saul. He looks like a Hollywood leading man. And he says, obviously, this is the guy. And God says, no, I look at different things. See, the Israelites criteria for finding a a king was the same as this church's criteria for finding a pastor. They want someone really tall and statuesque. And (laughs) why are you laughing? So um, he saw Samuel hears from the Lord. My criteria are different than yours. Then Jesse, made Shama, then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, his third son. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Anybody know what the number of completion in the ancient world was? Seven. So Samuel's thinking, okay, I've seen all of Jesse's sons. Is there a bad connection between me and the father? Have I misheard? Has there been a breakdown in communication? Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? Because see, Samuel knows God didn't make a mistake. There must be something else going on here. And he said, listen to this sentence, there remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. See, the, the term that Jesse uses to refer to David, we haven't even heard David's name yet, He calls him the youngest. And we say, okay, well, yeah. There's a youngest in every family, right? But the actual term Jesse uses in Hebrew is a very pejorative, insulting term. It it means not just youngest, but it means little. And it also means insignificant. So the closest word we have to that in the English language is the word runt. Oh, yeah, there's the runt. I forgot about him. And he's tending the sheep. By the way... I know we have this romanticized vision of shepherds because of the Christmas story and other stories from, bi- from the Bible, but shepherding was the worst job. That was the career you did not want to go into. You know, that reality show, Dirty Jobs or whatever, that, that's the one they would have gone to in the ancient world because, you know, we live in Texas where there's ranching, where there are barbed wire fences, where you put cows on a pasture and you go check on them once a day or so. But shepherds had to live with the sheep. There were no fences. You never came home unless you had someone to take your place for a day or two. So David is stuck with the worst job. And the reason they've forgotten all about him is not just because he's a runt, but because, well, they never see him. And here he comes. Verse 13, he sent and brought him in. I'm sorry, it's verse 12. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So that's the story of David's anointing. Where do we see Jesus? in I want to show you four things, four ways we see Jesus in this story. First of all, he is the God who sees. God sees us differently. God does not see the way people see God looked down into the city of Bethlehem. Of all the towns, Bethlehem is tiny, right? In all the places, a city, a nation called Israel. In all the families, the family of Jesse, and of all of Jesse's sons, he saw the one that was least regarded. Think about Eve's story that he told us. God knew about a young boy growing up in a refugee camp. Think about that. How many hundreds of thousands, millions of refugees live in camps today? Imagine the fact that God sees every single one of them, and every single one of them is precious to Him. There's a story in Genesis 16 that we don't often pay attention to because when we're in that section in Genesis, we're we're usually focused on Abraham and Sarah. And and if you've been reading the Bible with us, you've noticed that the heroes of Scripture, aside aside from Jesus, the heroes of Scripture sometimes do some really rotten things, make some terrible decisions, do some things that we find horrifying. And this is one of those cases. So Abraham is getting on in years and Sarah is, is right there behind him and, and she hasn't been able to have children yet and, and she wants Abraham, her husband, to have an heir and so she says to him, listen, I've got this slave girl from Egypt named uh, Hagar, why don't, you, why don't you go sleep with her and maybe God will give you a child, a son, through her. Now what, when, when, a, when a slave girl becomes the sexual property of her, her master, In the ancient world, people say, well, that's just the way things go. That's what it means to be a slave. But today we look at that, and what do we say? We say, that's rape. That young woman had no choice in the matter. And so here's Hagar, who gets impregnated by her master. And she becomes very resentful towards her mistress, Sarah, because of this thing that's been done to her. And Sarah's upset now because her her slave girl is now being disrespectful to her. Plus, I'm sure she's a little regretful about allowing her husband to go into the arms of this young woman. And so she begins to persecute Hagar and, and pick on her and rub salt in her wounds. And so Hagar flees and she says to herself, I'd rather die of thirst in the desert than spend one more minute around these people. And out there in the middle of the desert, who shows up but God Almighty appears to this young woman. And says, I have a plan for you. Don't give up. I have a plan for your son. He'll be a great nation. And Hagar is so amazed that the God of the universe would look at her, a slave, a foreigner, a rape victim, and say, you matter. I have a plan for you. That she actually gives God a brand new name. She calls him El Roy, which in Hebrew means the God who sees. And I'm here to tell you, you may think that you're insignificant, and you may think that you're not worthy of God's love, and you may think that you've done things that mean he could never accept you, but you're wrong. Because he sees you, he made you, and he has a plan for you. And nothing you can do will ever change that. Second thing we see from this, he redeems the worst that can happen to us. So what's, Je- what's David been doing all this time until Samuel walks in with his horn of oil one day? He's been shepherding. He's been doing a job nobody else wants. Well, what does that entail besides hanging out with a flock of smelly sheep 24-7, 365? It entails being on guard constantly. Because this is wild country. This is hostile land. Next week, when we look at chapter 17, when David is talking about Goliath, he's going to tell King Saul, I have fought lions and I've fought bears. And I'm sure that's not all there was. I'm sure there were wolves. I'm sure there were were scorpions. There were snakes. There was all kind of bad stuff. There was disease. There were storms. Do you think David had to be on alert all the time? Do you think David had to be courageous for a young man? Do you think he had to be especially crafty in figuring out, how am I, this pint-sized shepherd, going to fight off an actual bear? He had to be all those things. Do you think any of those things came in handy when he stood across the ridge from a 10-foot tall giant? Yeah. See, God didn't force David into the shepherd field. God didn't make his brothers despise him and his dad forget him. That happened. And God said, oh, is that what you're going to do? Well, here's what I'm going to do with that. You're going to throw that at my boy David? Well, I'm going to use that in his life to prepare him for greater things. And that's not all. You know what else happens in the sheep field? In between those moments of absolute terror, there are long stretches of intense boredom where you're just sitting around with nothing to do. Because let's face it, I, I raised sheep for three years when I was in 4-H until I got smart and switched over to pigs because they're a lot more interesting. Um, but sheep are dull. They're dumb. They're, I mean, The fact that we're compared to sheep in the Bible should tell you something. So David's sitting out there with nothing to do. And he finds out, as, as hopefully some of you have found out, that boredom is the seed garden of creativity. There's no creativity without having nothing to do. Constant stimulation, you're never going to come up with new ideas. It's only in those quiet moments when you're bored to tears and you start to let your mind wander. And what, what David's mind wanders to, because he's a young man who loves the Lord God, he begins to think up songs. Because God has given him a gift for music. He begins to think up songs of praise to God. And some of those songs are kind of bitter. Some of those songs are talking about, Lord, why are you letting this happen to us? And some of those songs are songs, Hey, Lord, take down our enemies. And some of those songs are songs of instruction. And some are songs of praise. And they become the greatest songs ever written that we know as the book of Psalms in the Bible. One of which says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Do you seriously think that the king of a nation sat down one day and wrote that down? I don't think so at all. I think that came out of a time when a young man had all the time in the world and nothing else to do but think about how much he loved his Lord. See, whatever this world throws at you, And I don't, what I'm about to say, I don't say lightly because I know, I know the struggle some of you have right now and I would not trade places with you because I know you're hurting and there are some of you here that I don't even know what you're going through and stuff that I probably couldn't handle even if you told me about it. So I'm not speaking casually when I say this, but whatever this world is doing to you right now or will do to you in the future, God is bigger than it. God sees you, God knows you, God has a way to take what the world throws at you and redeem it. So that if you will trust him and not turn away, if you hand it over to him and say, Lord, take this pain away, but in the meantime, do what you will in my life through it. If you will do that, someday you'll stand in glory and look back and be able to say, Lord, I rejoice about that time when the world caved in on me and you did something amazing. That's what Jesus is. He's the God who redeems the worst that can happen. And then third, He is faithful and true. At the end of the story, it says, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that time forward. In the Old Testament, you may have noticed this. Whenever the Holy Spirit shows up in someone's life, they're suddenly empowered to do supernatural things. Think of Elijah, who the Spirit rushed upon him, and he outran King Ahab's chariot from Mount Carmel to Jezreel. Think about Samson, who the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he grabbed a young lion and ripped it in two that was about to bite his head off. David received the Holy Spirit on that day. And it changed him. He was already a faithful young man. Now he became empowered to do amazing things, things that he never could have done on his own. The same thing happened to Saul, by the way. If you look back at the story of Saul in 1 Samuel, when he was anointed king, the the Spirit of God came upon him, and he got off to a great start led Israel to a couple of fantastic victories. But guess what happened? Saul walked away from God. Saul decided to make some choices to put himself first. And here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate gentleman. He will never force Himself upon you. He will never force you to stay with Him. He will let you go your own way. He will let you taste the bitter fruit of your own disobedience. And when your heart is broken and when you miss what you had with Him and you turn to come home, guess what you'll find? You'll find He hasn't moved one inch. He is still right there waiting for you. He is faithful and true. See, people look at David and they say, well, how can David be a man after God's own heart? After all, the Bible calls him that twice. Look at the terrible things David did. Look at the big mistakes he made, the huge sins he committed. How can this guy be a man after God's own heart? It's because deep down in his heart, David's, David's heart never changed. Even when he sinned, his heart never changed and his heart was I desire to be glorifying to you, God. I desire to be obedient to you. And when he failed, he was upfront about it. He didn't make excuses. He didn't blame others. He just got down before the Lord and said, Lord, I have hurt you. I have wounded you. Please forgive me and restore to me the joy of my salvation. And when he was on the top, he gave God the glory. All of his life, his desire was to be right with God. And God never left him. And God will never leave you. You know, in the book of Revelation, it says that Jesus has a name painted on his thigh that says faithful and true. Think about that. He is the faithful and true one. And if you, one of you here today could say, man, I remember when I was walking with the Lord and I was on fire for him and I I don't know what happened to that person. All you have to do is turn, make one turn toward home and he will receive you back. He hasn't changed. And then the fourth, fourth thing we see of Jesus in this story, he is the king we've been promised. See, this is Samuel's last big public act anointing Israel's king, and he says to himself, "Uh aha, this is the one God promised. This is the one my mother talked about. Obviously Saul wasn't him, but now God says, this is a man after my own heart. This is the king who's going to make Israel right. This is the one who's going to set things the way they ought to be and stand up for those who've been oppressed. And was David a great king? Absolutely. Militarily, politically, Israel never had a better king. He does some amazing things. We're going to talk about them over the next several weeks. But he wasn't the one that Hannah prophesied about. That one was still to come. See, centuries after 1 Samuel 16, there was another young woman who got pregnant against all the odds. Another baby born in Bethlehem. Another young mother who sings a song that sounds a whole lot like the song of Hannah. In fact, when you look it up in the, in the Gospels, what we call the Magnificat, the Song of Mary, sounds almost identical to the Song of Hannah. Again, here's Mary saying, kings will be dethroned, rulers will be toppled, the forgotten will be remembered, the oppressed will be set free, justice, freedom, righteousness will reign. Her son was born and no one paid attention. In fact, he wasn't handsome, he wasn't wealthy, he wasn't well-educated. He didn't have the kind of resume we looked for. And we ignored him. And those who didn't ignore him rejected him. He was killed like a criminal in the worst way imaginable. But in his death that looked like ultimate defeat, he accomplished total victory over all the forces of evil. He defanged the devil once and for all. In that death, He built a bridge between humanity and the kingdom of God that can never be toppled, that can never be crushed, so that anyone, any time they desire, can walk across that bridge of His grace, of His love, of His blood, to receive salvation and to live with God forevermore. And in His resurrection, He overcame death. He defeated our last enemy death once and for all, so that when you and I... Go to a funeral service of a person who died in Christ. We're attending a graduation party. We're attending a celebration of someone's promotion. We have nothing to fear anymore. Death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And someday, someday, he will take his throne. At the right time, at exactly the right moment, he will take his throne and every knee will bow before him, even those who cursed him. Every tongue will confess Him, even those who slandered Him. Everyone will know that He is Lord of all. And there will be true justice, and there will be absolute freedom. Joy will be everywhere. You've never been to a celebration like what we're going to experience, and the celebration will never end. You've never eaten food like you'll eat. You've never enjoyed laughter like you'll experience at that moment. You've never been able to sing like you'll sing on that day. And that party will never end. So what in the end is the the secret ingredient that God is looking for? It's actually nothing you can manufacture. It's grace. See, you don't have to be a certain kind of person to make God choose you. You just have to receive His gift. You don't have to try to get God to favor you because He's already chosen you before the foundation of the world. He looked at you and said, you're worth the life of God. Of my son Jesus. I will become a man. I will dwell in human flesh. I will lay down my life. Because that's how much you mean to me. He's chosen you. And all that remains for you and I to do. Is receive that gift. When you make him king of your life. You experience a total turnaround. That we symbolize through baptism. And not only that, but every day the rest of your life, the more you give Him authority and kingship over the the aspects of your life and your character, the more you experience the joy, the, the abundance of living under a perfect and righteous King. And the more you make Him King and the more you serve Him, the more you see your life as being something that absolutely matters for all of eternity. You experience the life you were meant to live. You accomplish the things you were put on earth to accomplish. And you do and you say things that end up echoing through all eternity. So all that is left to do is make Him king. Have you done that?